Bum, 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 bum. Hey, what's up? Muthanomics 53 coming at you. Uh, some people told me that I needed some intro music to this thing, um, but I'm not too sure how the licensing works. And I've looked at some uh, like stock audio sites and didn't find anything that I liked. So for the time being, we are intro music less. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. I wanted to um, talk to you a little bit, or maybe a lot, about a few thoughts that I have regarding stuff going on in our world. And I think I'd like to start by just simply saying that I have so many um, I told you blasts that I could drop on certain people's heads, um, specifically as it relates to cloth masks um, and specifically as it relates to cloth masks. <laughs> but um, I don't want to be that guy. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of want to be that guy because a handful of people gave me a lot of grief over the last two years for sticking to my guns that cloth masks were ineffective in filtering the COVID aerosol. And I won't even say the COVID aerosol. I will say aerosols that fell within the size parameters that the COVID aerosols were measured at. Um, I even had a couple people go so far as people that I know through Christian circles who know that, you know, know me from church or from, you know, being Christian, etc., um, attack me for tarnishing my witness for Christ. Um, it, it all stemmed, a lot of this stemmed from a, a just a very kind of benign, artistic, uh, infographic sort of visualization thing that I posted on Instagram um, last year. And I'm surprised I never got flagged. I think it was before they started, you know, COVID policing everything. Um, but I just did a, I just did a visual representation of the size of the COVID aerosol. And I overlaid it on the filtration size of your typical cloth mask. And I said, this is, this is similar. It's akin to trying to create a mosquito net out of a tennis racket. Um, and you know, if you've, you've ever held or seen a tennis racket, like this, the, the gap between the strings is not sufficient to prevent mosquito from passing through. Um, and it's simply all I did. And I talked about, hey, you know, if you, if you want more info, you can research Brownian diffusion and you can look at the actual physical measurements associated with these things. I mean, it's not like it's some like mystical, medieval, you know, witch doctor, you know, juju nonsense that, you know, we can't comprehend. It's based on actual physical observable measurements. And so I, I posted that and I was like, hey, here's the measurements. Here's the Brownian diffusion theory. Knock yourself out. From what I have concluded, looking at the sizes, cloth masks aren't effective at filtering aerosols in this particular size range. Totally, totally just physical uh, presentation of physical measurements. 
And that kind of sparked it back in the day. And people, you know, got in my direct messages and they were like, oh, you're spreading misinformation and you're being a bad witness for Christ. And what about this study and this study that said, you know, six weeks ago that, oh, in our, you know, trial, cloth mass did prevent it. And I was like, dude, I'm not, we're not talking about stuff that just popped up within the last six to eight weeks. We're talking about theories that have been around for decades that relate to the actual size filtration capabilities of particular filters, in this case, a cloth mask, and the measurements that we have observed as it relates to this particular virus. Um, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter what label you put on the particle. You could have called it the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious particle. If it falls within a certain range of measurements, your standard cloth mask is ineffective for filtering that. It's just size-based reasoning. Um, anyway, so I was, I was tarnishing my witness for Christ. I was not contributing to the peace and purity of the church. I was putting my own individual freedom above the greater good. Um, so I, 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 people busted my chops for a while. Um, and at, at some point I was like, you know what? It just it sort of falls into the hole if you want to go back to the Bible, um, casting your pearls before swine. It's like, you know, again, this isn't an opinion. This isn't me, you know, making some baseless assertion. This is me simply looking at physics, measurements, and filtration capabilities. Take take the label COVID off of stuff and just look at size, size effectiveness, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, lo and behold, shocker, um, the CDC comes out, what, a few weeks ago and says, oh, cloth masks aren't effective. The media starts running with that. Oh yeah, now the CDC says cloth masks aren't effective. Everybody needs an N95. John Hopkins last week comes out cloth masks and all the lockdowns didn't do anything to deter the disease. It's like, duh. <laughs> Told you. And it's not because I'm a genius. It's simply because I looked at sizes and filtration capabilities based on sizes and they didn't work. Um, and I, yeah, it's just, it's amazing to me. So that got me thinking um, about misinformation, disinformation, and the word information in general. And as I've been pondering those concepts and terms over the last several weeks, something, a light bulb has gone off for me. And that's what I'm going to run with for this particular episode. And it's the word, and you probably saw it in the title and thought, of, thought, thought that it was a typo, but there's a space. If you look at the title in your podcasting app, there's a space in information. It's in space formation. And you go, well, what does that mean? I thought it was a typo. I thought you were just drunk typing. Um, different than drunk texting, I guess, and type drunk podcasting, drunk, drunk typing. Um, no, that space is very deliberate because this is the point I want to make. That when you're talking these days about information, disinformation, misinformation, postmodernism has taken us to a post-fact society. And so no one has any interest. What was that? That was some, that was some uh, buy order or sell order in the stock market. I wonder what happened. Did I buy or did I sell? Little detour here. 
um, as the volatility of the stock market wreaks havoc on everything, including my portfolio. Was that a buy or a sell? Oh yeah, it was a buy. Sweet. I got more. I got more arb warrants at ninety cents. Perfect. Um, I think I said what three months ago that if body warrants ever went. Um, I think I had a dream that they were like at 10 cents or 15 cents or something and I loaded the boat. Um, well, they ended up dropping to 17 cents and I, I maybe bought more than I should have. Uh, but you buy the fear, right? I mean, if the company is fundamentally solid, you buy the fear. That's where you make your money. As I've said before, everybody wants to buy low until it's time to buy low. Um, but maybe I'll talk about the stock market a little bit later because the I've, I've limited my exposure, uh, but have been experimenting. Starting January 1st, I really started experimenting with short-term trading of options, which is probably fodder for an entirely separate podcast because those things are about as volatile as you can get. Like literally, you can go from i mean i'm not this is not hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination if you get a 10 if you get a 15 15 to 20 percent move in a stock price on a single day which is normally normally it's attached to an earnings release and then when it's not attached to an earnings release it would be attached to like a you know catastrophic news event or some you know positive news surprise if you get that move I'm not kidding you. It's time after time after time after time. I've been charting this just in observing it. Um, you you will have one to five thousand percent returns in a day. Um, so it's the 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 leverage and the multiplier on it is ridiculously. I mean, it's just mathematically insane. Like I've I bought another options book and I'm you know digging into the math to even try to figure out try to even understand it. Now, granted, um, that volatility comes with the shorter term options. So, I mean, we're talking options that expire within a week. Um, so, you know, and the thing with options is if you get the move the wrong way, what a, your principal goes to zero just as fast. So in some sense, that's what people say, you know, options is for, you know, for gambling degenerates. Um, but anyway, so I, I traded, uh, I think I, I think it, I need, I need to actually look at the numbers. I think I traded 35 different options um, in January. Um, but it's it's a, it's an interesting game. I've been playing around it, playing around with it with small dollar amounts. And the most frustrating thing I think I've experienced so far um, in the stock market, especially as it relates to options, is last week, the la the first week of February, I was six for seven green day trading options, and yet I still lost money. You go, well, how is that possible? Well, it's the seventh one that I got super confident in. I overweighted it. So I had been, every every purchase had been within a, a range. I was trying to keep everything between $100 and $200 per bet. And by the seventh one, I was like, bro, I'm on fire, baby. I, I fell for the hot hand fallacy. And so I overweighted that and I went 750 bucks on it and it didn't move up as much as I needed it to move up in order to turn it into a profitable endeavor. And so instead of cutting my losses, I just started drinking large amounts of hopium going, oh, well, I can get a $45 move out of that instead of a $30 move. And of course it moved 31 and I could have sold for a, a very you know small loss 
Um, but I was like, hey, it can go 45, which I knew it couldn't, but I just started hoping that it would. And then sure enough, it expired worthless. So um, six for six, green, profitable, get cocky, confident, hot hand fallacy, go three to four times bigger on the seventh and final bet. And it wiped out all the gains from the previous six. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm, I'm playing small. Uh, but what I have been doing on, on these, uh, on the, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, I guess technically, technically we are sort of in, um, we're kind of in crash territory for a lot of this stuff. Like anything over 20% down is technically a crash. So Facebook is in a crash. Uh, Pinterest was in a crash, Peloton's in a, I mean, a ton of tech uh, has either been in a crash the last three months or it's crashed within the last week. Like Facebook fell off the face of the earth after their metaverse disappointed, which I thought was hysterical because the metaverse is crap to begin with. In fact, I saw some, some headline today that said that, quote, metaverse is a steaming bag of dog bleep. Um, and so I, it cracks me up. I, I think the metaverse is a bunch of hokey, but I, I will say this. I, I hate, I don't hate because I don't know him and I really am trying to avoid ad hominem attacks. Um, I don't like Mark Zuckerberg's approach to doing business, which back in the day was this radic idea of radical transparency, that the more radical, uh, radically transparent everyone was, that that would produce a better society. And coming from the background that I grew up in, I heard that and I was like, dude, this is just him setting up a straw man to slide in a bunch of egregious abuses and privacy violations later on down the road. So I, I closed my Facebook account in 2009. Um, oh my gosh, you're such a geezer. Uh, so for me, it's kind of funny that Facebook is tanking because the metaverse to me, it just seems ridiculous. It seems like a rebooted second life, um, which was a thing back in, I think the early 2000s, like maybe 2004, 2005, 2006. Um, and it was sort of this, like you could go into this virtual universe and like create an avatar and like live out a secret life and people were addicted to it. And there was like a whole sub economy and stuff. That's what the metaverse is just kind of a rebooted second life. And maybe it'll be wildly successful because everybody, you know, is going to reap the results of communism and socialism that's trying to spread around the world globally. And instead of just starving to death in a back alley, freezing, uh, you know, you'll have your Oculus headset on and, you know, at least you'll be getting some dopamine hits that you're living, you know, on the Pacific in your metaverse mansion, eating fake filet mignon, which is probably has some tie in to the Matrix and that guy, you know, when he betrayed Neo and he's eating the steak. And I think uh, Agent Anderson says, you know, how do you feel about that being not real? And he's like, I don't care if it's fake or not. I taste it. It's amazing. So who knows? Maybe um maybe the metaverse is going to be the 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 next generation's uh, opioid equivalent epidemic um, to numb people into accepting a communist hellhole, which the elites are trying to shove down our throats at this point in time. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Facebook, Zuckerberg, metaverse. Darn it! There was something else I wanted to say about that, and yet again on a rabbit trail that I can't immediately remember my way back. Uh, I, I've been drinking, um, I've been drinking Cafe Bustello Instant Espresso for the last six weeks, and I'm really enjoying it. I got kind of burnt out on the, on the Nespresso pods. It was like 
one, they just kept getting more and more expensive. And two, I don't know. I just started not liking them. I just, they were kind of like, ugh. So I tried some different ones and I landed on Cafe Bustelo Instant Espresso. And I think part of it is just laziness. Like I was tired of waiting. <laughs> you just push a button and it brews your coffee. Well, you know, you had to refill the water thing, which was kind of annoying. Um, <laughs> so my next step in, in absolute... Uh, coffee laziness, total abject, slovenly uh, nothingness is going to be buying one of those electric water heaters um, for your coffee. My my in-laws got one and it like miraculously heats it up in like under 30 seconds. Like you click the button and then boom, it's hot. Um, it makes the, the propane gas, natural gas powered uh, teapot seem completely obsolete. So that's going to be my next step. Um, but the other reason too, I guess the Nespresso wasn't grainy. I got, I started, I got off the French press because it got too grainy. I didn't like the grit. And so moving to the Nespresso smoothed it out. And then something about the Nespresso, I just got burnt out on and the instant Espresso just is totally smooth. There's no grit. There's no, there's no grime. There's no grounds. It's just delicious. It's just a good, good, uh, hot bold cup of cafe bustello espresso maybe that was the ad for this podcast <laughs> um facebook oh yeah so they announced their um they announced their earnings and they they bombed they went from like 330 a share down to 340 a share in a day is the biggest market capitalization wipeout in the history of the stock market um so yeah, so a lot of this stuff's in, in crash territory. The only big techs that I see that aren't in crash territory are Amazon and Apple, um, which is, I don't, I'm not making a comment that that's either good nor bad. The more I read about the Pareto principle, the more I think it's inevitable um, because the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, it applies across the board. It's not some you know nefarious capitalistic invention um, it, it applies in nature. Um, it applies in civilizations prior to capitalism. I mean, it seems to be this statistical phenomenon that is somehow just part of uh, creation. It's just part of our universe. Um, and I was listening to a guy lecture on it, and he was saying that, you know, the mass of planets is distributed in an 80-20 rule. The mass of stars uh, is distributed in an 80-20 rule. Um, so I find it fascinating. And so, you know, Apple and Amazon, Hey, they're in that, they're, they're part of that 80, 20 rule, which I don't think we fully understand, um, by any stretch of the imagination, because if it's naturally occurring in the universe, um, I think it's pretty arrogant and also pretty naive to say, Oh, it's just, a, it's a construct of evil capitalists and people who want to make money. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so, because if it's in nature, that's not capitalistic. And if it's in societies, uh, repeatedly seen in societies prior to capitalism, then your point's kind of falling apart. So anyway, a lot of, a lot of uh, see, I told you so's, deservedly people need, I think, to own those. Um, because while you were hiding in your pajamas in your safety bubble, screaming incoherently from your rooftop 
um, and making assertions that turned out to be absurd, uh, yeah, you need to own that. You need to wallow in that. You need to own that. You need to recognize um, that your fear caused you to ignore physics. And I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel stupid for that or ashamed for that or, oh, geez. Maybe what it'll help you do is not pick up the next talking point so vehemently and just run roughshod with it. And again, it gets back to my information stuff. So in space formation, and this is what it boils down to. The, the, the aha moment that hit me is that information, the question I've been asking myself, and this is related to a book that someone recommended to me um, called Smear and talks about, you know, the establishment's mechanisms that they have in place to smear people who go counter to their official talking points. Fascinating, fascinating read concept. Um, and it's kind of based on that. I forget the exact question. I think their question was, they said, in this day and age, um, when anybody presents information to you, you need to ask yourself, why is someone putting that in front of me? And so I, I, I've been pondering that with putting a space between in and formation. And I am... I've concluded, I've kind of modified that question and I've been asking myself, what form does this person or group or party want me to take based upon this data that they are putting in front of me? And so information is not, is no longer in this post-fact, post-modern dystopian nightmare that we're sort of like have one foot in. Um, it's not data. It is assertions that that the end goal is not to present all data points and allow the individual to draw conclusions. The end goal is to present assertions that forcefully coerce you to take a particular formation. You go, what are you talking about? I mean, think about it. You know, think of the things that we think of when we think of, oh, those people are in formation, marching bands, uh, military, you know, marching displays, um, air show formations. I mean, th there's an end goal in those things of people taking on the shape of something. You know, you think about soldiers marching in some display, you know, especially in like some of the most like uh, bone chilling displays, you know, like Nazi soldiers in the 30s marching down whatever, you know, main boulevard in Berlin. And, you know, they're all in unison and they're all, you know, heiling Hitler and, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, you know, Chinese military doing stuff, you know, um, you're. They're in formation, and if someone is out of that formation, it's, it's wildly obvious. And so I think there's two things going on with the quote-unquote in-space formation wars. One, it's to get as many people as possible. They're hoping that the majority will take the shape of some predetermined end goal that they have in mind. So that, it's a, it's a two-sided coin, so that they can easily identify the people who are 
not taking that same formation. And you go, whoa, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You're putting spaces in words. No, I don't think I'm crazy on this front. Because if, the, if, if we did live in, because here, here's the thing, you know, everybody says trust the science. And I don't care what it is, global warming, COVID, you know, it could be it, so many talking points, fracking, trust the science. Well, if you really understood science, you would understand that the backbone of scientific theory is perpetual questioning. Like you don't have robust science without perpetual questioning. You form a hypothesis, you present that hypothesis, you pursue that through testing, observation, and is it repeatable? You have to test it, you have to observe it, you have to there, and, and you have to check if it's repeatable. Robust science is by definition a state of perpetual questioning and testing. And so if information and data was what it should be in its you know, best state, where you present a bunch of data points, you present a bunch of observations, then you let a bunch of other people test and question that data and those observations, and draw their own conclusions. And then from that second set of conclusions, other questions and hypotheses are, are, are formulated. And then, then other people test and question and, and go through the process again and come up with even another set of conclusions. I mean, that, that, that's robust science. And if you do that, there is a diversity of hypotheses. There's a diversity of conclusions. There's a diversity of approaches. There's a diversity. So when you have a diversity of conclusions, that, ne that necessarily means that you then have a diversity of additional pursuits in light of those differing, hypo uh, differing conclusions. So, but when you stop and you look around at what's going on, whether it's related to global warming, whether it's related to this covantifopocalypse, um, that's just a complete, it's proving itself even more and more to be just a complete scam. Oh, that's the other one. The other one, the first one was masks, okay? That's the I told you so, that you need to wallow in your own, you don't need to wallow, you need to question your own fear-based uh, control mechanisms that are going on in your life, perhaps. Um, but the, the, the other one is just the what we know and what we've known about viruses for decades. Namely, and I, I think I even podcasted about this a couple times. At the very front end of this thing, I gave lift rides to some various doctors and I asked them, you know, this is on the very front end. This is like in Feb January, February of 2020. This is before you know, lockdowns were even considered. This is way before two weeks to flatten the curve nonsense. Um, and they were just doctors. One was, a, I think, a neonatal guy. And the other one was a marine biologist, um, some, you know, animal zoology guy. And I asked him, I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this, you know, coronavirus stuff going around? And both of them said, just very casually, like not even alarmed, well, you know, Every flu virus is a coronavirus. That's just the sh it refers to the shape that it takes. And I said, oh, okay, I didn't know that. And then, and I said, well, you know, what about the virility of it, the, the potency of it? 
And they said, well, you know, some viruses are more potent than others. Um, but they said the nature of a virus, both of them said this independent of each other, different rides, different times. They didn't know each other. Same questioning. They both said, well, that's just the nature, that's the nature of viruses. If a virus starts off very potent, it, what we know about viruses is that they mutate to become less potent so that they don't kill themselves. So they said, even if COVID-19 ends up being extremely potent, um, the, it will, it will, by definition, based upon what we know about viruses, it will mutate to become less potent so that it won't kill itself. And lo and behold, and, and lo and behold, that's what has happened. Not because they had, you know, not because there was some witch doctor and they consulted some magic beans in a hat. No, because they were rational and they knew, hey, this is what we know about how viruses behave. And every virus we have observed behaves this way. Therefore, it is rational and reasonable to conclude that a next virus coming on the scene will behave in the same fashion. And when I shared that, you know, almost two years ago now, that was in the same fashion as the, you know, people who got really passionate about critiquing me for cloth masks and the physics associated with Brownian diffusion and the size of particles. Those same people came after me in my comments and in emails and in text messages, um, you know, just with completely unhinged fear-based hysteria of, well, no, it's going to be different this time. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think people prefer to be controlled by fear. Um, and I think that people who want to be in power know this, and they know this very, very clearly and very, very deeply. And so that fear goes right into the in space formation wars to get people to take a very specific form so that you can easily identify people who are refusing to take that form. Um, and I think the, the key here, the key here for people who are resistant to taking um, certain forms, I think the key here is to recognize that most people are cowards and it, and it takes bravery and it takes rational, clear, critical thinking um, to not be swept away with the sea of cowards. <laughs> End of podcast. Stop being a coward. <laughs> You're so mean. I hate this podcast. That's why I never listen to it. No, you, you don't listen to it because I, I publish it uh, not frequently or inconsistently or periodically. Oh, my stuff. I still haven't published part two of my conversation with Yuri uh, because I've been I've been wrestling with the two sides of the coin. One, speaking the truth. Okay, so one of the things that I've been learning is I've been reading about uh, children of alcoholics and trauma and different things. Is that you know the, the rules of the alcoholic home are don't speak, don't trust, don't feel, and so. On the one hand, it's like, okay, well, I'm, you know, I want to get over the don't speak. So you want to, you want to speak, you want to tell the truth. You want to say, hey, this was my experience. This is what happened. This was, th these are the events that occurred. 
One, so that you sort of break your own, uh, I don't even know what to call it. You break your own, you break out of whatever that oppressive kind of uh, dark shame is that, hey, this is what happened. Um, but also so that, that you would encourage people who maybe have gone through or are going through similar things to say, hey, you're not alone. Um, so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the biblical mandate to honor your father and your mother. And there are things that transpired in my childhood that I'm wrestling with as far as... So we recorded that podcast and I, I went back and listened and there's things in there that Yuri and I talked about that I just need to give some more thought to how does speaking the truth and not hiding uh, things, how does that overlap with the biblical mandate to honor um, your father and your mother? So I've been wrestling with that for the better part of, of what, I don't know, geez, probably two months almost, and trying to give some thought to that so that I have some clarity on that before I publish that second episode. And you might listen to it eventually and go, what? That's no big deal. Um, but I, I I don't want to be cavalier in ignoring honoring your father and your mother in light of, you know, I don't want I, I don't want to put children of alcoholic psychology over biblical mandates, I guess is probably the most succinct way to say that. So you don't listen to this podcast because I mean, or you don't listen to this podcast because I publish it periodically. Um, but I think, I think our culture would be well suited to really consider this space in between in and formation. And over the weekend, I thought you published this on Saturdays. No, this is a Monday. I'm publishing this on a Monday. Um, over the weekend, you know, Twitter and whatnot erupted trying to cancel Joe Rogan for a, somebody put together a mashup of him saying the N word like 27 times. And everybody was freaked out and outraged and, you know, feigned all this. Oh, uh, it's terrible. White supremacist, alt-right, blah, blah. What, what's hilarious to me is somebody sent me a list. Somebody said, oh, look at all the right, the, the, the far right people that Rogan's had on his show. Barry Weiss. They, they put Barry Weiss on the right wing side. I was like, you kidding me? Former New York Times journalist, you know, self-proclaimed leftist, COVID, you know, passionate COVID leftist lunatic. She's, I mean, she admitted as much on Bill Mayer last two weeks ago. Um, she's now far right. And again, this goes to the in-space formation. They're trying to form people into very rigid formations. And the sooner... We as a population and as a culture wake up to this, the sooner all of this nonsense stops. Um, and so, you know, over the weekend, everyone was losing, not everyone, probably nine, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even going to guess at what the percentages are. But any time, quote unquote, everyone losing, loses their minds, you can rest assured that there is a large percentage included in that everyone count that aren't real people and to the extent they are real people it's an individual manipulating hundreds if not thousands of bot accounts pretending to be real people okay so when i say everyone i'm using air air quotes and i'm using it very loosely 
Um, but the media and the democratic establishment wanted to make you perceive that everyone was losing their mind over Joe Rogan using the N-word 27 times over the course of 15 years and podcasting the Joe Rogan experience. Now, you go, oh, you're so insensitive. He can't say that. It's not my point. My point is this. There's been a video on YouTube that's been there since at least 2019 that has nearly 72 million views that has shown the exact same content of Joe Rogan using the N-word on the Joe Rogan experience. That information, that those particular data points, those particular recordings put into a compilation form have been around for over three years and already had acquired 72 million views. This was not breaking news. You know, I, I sort of get, you know, I sort of get the cancel culture-ish kind of stuff when it's revelations that are appalling that nobody ever knew about. You know, so you have like, you know, the stuff surrounding Harvey Weinstein come out and it's sort of like, you know, a first story comes out and then it kind of just more and more victims come forward and it's like, holy smokes, like, wow, this guy was really a monster and nobody knew this or not many people knew this. I get that. I get that outrage. I get sort of the, you know, the crescendo of, hey, you know, this was bad and we should do something about it. Um, the Larry Nasser, I think, was his name, the the U.S. gymnast doctor who, you know, ended up, you know, sexually assaulting, sexually molesting hundreds of, of USA gymnast uh, women, you know, and, and the first story leaks and then the next one and then more and more girls and women get the courage to say, hey, you know, he did the same thing to me. And then before you know it, it's like this groundswell of, wow, this guy was a monster. Um, I get that kind of stuff. But when when you have the data points and the recordings and the compilation already out there for multiple years, tens of millions of views, and then all of the sudden to ramp this up and, and treat it like it's brand new, never before seen, groundbreaking, first time ever we knew this sort of you know hyperbole, you have to then, I think you're forced to put the space between in and formation. There's clearly some sort of formation that certain entities are wanting the population to take based upon that sort of duplicitous, disingenuous, three years after the fact and 72 million views later, um, knowledge. And so, and, and, and if you don't ask yourself this question of what form is this group or this political party or this media organization or this ex-president, Barry Hussein, um, any, any, any time you're presented with, with pieces of information these days, pieces of data, pieces of opinion, pieces of data points, you have to ask yourself, what formation are these people wanting me to take? And I, I think if you don't have the courage to ask yourself that question, you are going to be the lemming that gets led over the hillside 
Or even worse, you're going to be the dupe that ends up being the dude, and I'm, I'm using hyperbole, but we're sort of at a point where maybe it's not that far away, I don't know. You're gonna be akin to the guys that are, you know, cleaning out the crematoriums at the concentration camps going, oh geez, well, you know, they told me that these people were bad and that they were a cancer on our society. They presented me with information that said these people are a threat to our country, so I'm just doing my job and keeping the country safe. <laughs> um, yeah, I was reading, you know, I, I, people have very opinionated uh, opinions on Jordan Peterson. Um, I've talked a little bit about him in the past. I, I think one of the things that I stumbled upon over the last few months from him that was the most poignant is he said that the purpose one of the purposes for our generation this day, you know what, a uh, hundred years later, we're about, we're all, we're a hundred years removed, maybe even over, over a hundred years removed from, you know, when Hitler started spewing, you know, asininely insane, uh, you know, things referring to Jewish people as, as bacteria and, you know, they're a cancer in our society and, and all this stuff. We're using biological terms to reference a group of people. Um, and he said the point for us is we need to look in the mirror and we need to realize that we are the Nazis. You need to look in the mirror and realize you are the tyrant. And you can already hear people soundbiting that and going, oh, look, Muth said we are the Nazis. Oh, that must mean he... No, there's the quote, you know, if given the opportunity, all men will be tyrants. Another way to say it is you need to look in the mirror and realize that you are the tyrant. And if you're not the tyrant, you need to look in the mirror and realize that you are the person who would implement the tyrant's wishes. And nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. Most people are either ignoring it, just saying, oh, well, you know, it'll blow over. Or they're the ones who are beginning to run with being the people who implement the tyrant's wishes without even being aware of it. And that's just really frightening because it shows a lot of self-deception and it shows a lot of wishful thinking and it shows a lot of turning a blind eye to the proclivity of mankind to either be tyrants themselves or to go along with the tyrant's wishes. And he shared a story in, in a lecture I listened to where he said he investigated, he wanted to go down this deep, dark, you know, depressing rabbit hole of looking at the worst atrocities committed by men during the 1930s um, with the Holocaust and the concentration camps. And he said, I, he said, I wasn't so much interested in looking at the tyrants themselves because that's so well documented. He said, I wanted to try to figure out the, the boots on the ground who did this kind of stuff. And he said he came upon, upon this book that was about a, a local police force in Poland that was tasked by the Nazis to recruit and train young men to go into the communities to arrest pregnant women, strip them naked, take them out into this assassination field, and shoot them in the back of the head. And he said over the course of, of a few years, this became one of the most brutal police forces under the Third Reich. And it consisted of normal everyday people, normal everyday guys getting recruited 
by the police force and specifically trained on how to go and arrest pregnant women, strip them down, take them to the assassination field and shoot them in the back of the head. And he was like, that's what I want to understand because that's the deep, dark underbelly. That's, that's the darkest kernel of what exists in that statement that if given the chance, all men would be tyrants. That's the deep, dark kernel that exists in every single one of us. And if, and if we deny that and we say, oh, no, yeah, that's not me. I'm not going to do it. And then you turn around and you pinpoint people who you disagree with and say, they deserve to be separated from the rest of us based upon some characteristic that they have. You're doing the exact same thing short of actually maybe at this point in time, putting a bullet in someone's head. You're ostracizing though, based upon that same deep, dark, internal sinfulness that exists in each one of us. And I think the most beneficial thing that came out of listening to that lecture is he says that when you come face to face with that darkness that lurks in each one of us, we're really presented with two choices. We can just kind of go along with it and just let that darkness overtake us. Or we can look at it and seek to bring light forth from it or put light against it. In other words, do good against that. And he says that to do good means to speak the truth and to seek the good of other people. So there's a lot of spiritual themes um, running through a lot of that stuff. Um, but I, I think in observing, in my observations over the last couple of years in dealing with a lot of this stuff, it stems from fear of man. Whether it's fear that you want to keep your job, whether it's fear that you don't want to be outed, so to speak, as the person who is not in the proper formation, I think that's probably the biggest fear. Because when you think about it, you know, there's always that, there's that picture floating around of, you know, it's a picture of people, you know, hiling Hitler. And there's a hundreds of men in this photograph that's taken up from this platform. And, you know, all of them are hiling Hitler. And there's one dude sitting there with this scowl on his face with his arms crossed. And everybody says, I'd be that guy. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be that guy because you're a freaking pansy. You wouldn't be that guy because you lack moral courage. You wouldn't be that guy because you're afraid to be found out of formation. So don't look at that picture and pat yourself on the back and say, oh, I'd be that guy. No, you wouldn't. You'd be all the other guys that are standing there hiling Hitler and in your own mind, either agreeing with it 100% or justifying it away as, oh, well, this will just blow over. This isn't a big deal. Someone else will take care of this problem. I'm just trying to look out for me and mine. The self-delusion that goes into tyrants rising is probably the most fascinating thing to me in reading history and listening to other people lecture on history. Because it involves first 10 and then 20, and then 50, and then 100, and then 1,000 of people 
not having the courage to be found just a tiny bit out of formation. And then before you know it, that snowballs. And then no one, everyone's abandoned the courage to be found out of formation. And it's really reprehensible. It's really cowardly. And I want to, and I'll just say it straight up, shame on you if you have been participating in that fearful appropriation of falling in line to keep the peace because I don't want to be outed as someone who's not in formation. Think for yourself. Good God, man. So, so long as we have a bunch of spineless, soy boy, freaking Marxist, utopian bedwetters who are just obsessed with being found homogenous within whatever group think is going on at that particular point in time, we're, we're not headed for good places. We need courage. We need manliness. Um, and, and I'm actually ashamed of Joe Rogan for apologizing. I'm, I'm 100% ashamed of him for apologizing. Way to coward out, Joe Rogan. Oh, you're a monster. You really are a white supremacist and a racist. He has to apologize. Look, if I was Joe Rogan and I knew that I had said those things for 15 years, and I knew, and I, and I don't know this for a fact because I didn't really even care to look into it at all, really, beyond the cursory click and 90-second perusal back in 2019 when that first video came out. But when you, when you examine the first you know, three instance of, instances of him saying the N-word on that clip several years ago, you, you know, okay, well, in one of them, he was quoting Richard Pryor. In another one, he was quoting a rap lyric. So you're, you're looking at that and you're going, okay, so even back then, just a cursory, super lazy kind of, okay, you know, what's this and what did he say? It's like, okay, so he's quoting, okay? Um, just even then you knew that. So if I'm Joe Rogan and I know that for 15 years I've said this word very publicly, on my podcast, that this isn't groundbreaking, unearthing secret files, you know, where in my public persona, I'm pretending to be this dude that's XYZ and never uses offensive language. And then, you know, these secret recordings come out, you know, in my private house or, you know, wherever. And I'm, you know, just speaking completely out of character with what I said publicly. If I know that's the case and I've already addressed it previously, and I know that when I said that particular word, I was quoting someone else. To then go and apologize is just like the height of spinelessness. And I think that's the point. That's the point. You know, there, there's a reason that Lenin... And you're gonna, I'm not equating Rogan to, to Orthodox priests. There's a reason that Lenin targeted Russian Orthodox priests 
and purged them. There's a reason Lenin targeted politicians who spoke against him and targeted them and either assassinated them or deported them or put them in gulags. There's a reason that tyrants, there, there's a reason Hitler, uh, my favorite my favorite architect, um, von Mies, uh, what's his, I, I have him around the corner. Um, Helmuth, no, that's, Helmuth, no, that's, that's the other guy. That's the Helmuth von Mulkey. Um, the guy that, that fought Hitler from within inside the German legal system. Um, how come I can't remember this? Uh, Mies van der Rohe, my favorite, my favorite architect, Mies van der Rohe. He, he had to leave Germany because his theories of architecture were counter to the theories of architecture that the Third Reich put forth. Architecture! The style of a building was against the official quote-unquote formation of what uh, uh, the style of a building should be according to the Third Reich. Mies van der Rohe had to flee the country. An architect. Okay? This isn't, this isn't, oh, we just have to be empathetic and we have to, you know, uh, have good, good, nice feelings towards one another and everything will be great. No, this, this is a deliberate purposeful, directed effort to get people to take a particular formation and to therefore eat more easily identify those who will not take that formation. And it's absolute hogwash. And you better shake yourself out of your feel, fearful, pajama-riddled, cornflake eating, hiding in the basement, watching Netflix stupor that you're in and sack up. Goodness gracious. So the fact that Rogan apologized, I just, I just find to be one of the most cowardly, sold out, um, intellectually dishonest, evidence ignoring, disingenuous apologies on in the history of the world. <laughs> maybe, maybe the history of the world is a little too much. <laughs> like, and, and here's the thing. Again, if it was stuff that leaked out that no one ever knew about, it's a totally different story. Because then you really are apologizing because it's like, oh crap, nobody knew this about me. And I said some things that are really offensive and wow, I, I need to get on the back heels and I need to apologize because yikes, this is, uh, oh, it's terrible. This is a bad revelation. It's public knowledge. It already went viral several years ago. He's quoting other people and yet he still bends the knee and apologizes. So he's lost a listener just because he's a freaking coward. Oh my goodness, you're so mean. So yeah. Yeah, you lost a listener, Joe Rogan. Um, not because of what you said, because we all knew that you already said it. And we all knew that you were quoting other people. At least the first three examples I looked at, you were quoting other people. I have no idea what the other context was for the other, the other blasts, um, the other offensive word usages. Um, but we all know you already said it. It's been public for 15 years. And we're going to all wring our hands in this fake display of outrage because we all are afraid to be 
seen as someone who won't fall into the official formative narrative. Go pound sand. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't want to say. I, could, I should probably just sit here and just say that you're all cowards for the rest of the episode. Read a book on manliness. Find some courage. Um, so yeah, but... And I, and I think again, I think again, and it's why, I mean, it's really why, you know, why, why did, why did German business owners, you know, require the particular, you know, patch on the, the arm? Why, why did they, why did they refuse service to the people who had the patch sewn on their, on their shirt? Well, it's because they wanted to stay in business. Oh my goodness. I got, I, I don't want to go out of business. I can't be controversial. I don't want to get seen as being outside of the formation. So I'm going to take their information that they give me and I'm going to go along with it because it has nothing to do with data points. It has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with examining pieces of data and coming up, or maybe it's pieces of datum. I can never get the plural and and singular of data straight. (laughs) I think datum is datum singular and data. So it would be pieces of datum if if I remember correctly. Whatever, you take pieces of information and you draw your own conclusions. Great. That's not that's not what is going on. It's it's like a it's like a to catch a predator is sort of this like ultimate catfish game going on, where we're gonna bait we're gonna bait people and we're we're gonna find out who all the cowards are and we know just through statistical distribution of the Pareto principle that at least eighty percent of them are gonna be cowards. And that'll make it much easier to find the twenty percent or less who aren't cowards, and then our job's done. So it can be flipped on its head, though. It can be flipped on its head, though, because if 20% of the people are responsible for 80% or more of the outcome, what that means is that if even a minority of people stop being such cowards, they can materially impact the outcome. Oh, look, it goes both ways. Um, so I refuse. I refuse to be a coward. I refuse to go along with taking a formation primarily or even secondarily out of fear of being found out of formation. Um, And if the last two years taught me anything, it it wasn't, it's not even strangers. I mean, yeah, yeah, you'd get the the stranger, you know, like when I posted the Goya beans thing, um, you know, I was like, Hey, you can't cancel Goya beans. Screw it. And I went out and I bought like, you know, every can of Goya beans off the shelf of Walmart. And I did some book beat beans, uh, book bean, bo- not book beat beverage. I did a book beat beans episode. I was getting all kinds of random bot driven hate comments. Oh, you're white supremacist. Oh, you're this, you're that. So it wasn't even the anonymous, you know, cowards hiding behind keyboards and bot algorithms. It was actual real people that I know who got in my face. And said, oh, you're, oh, sorry, coffee burps. You're being a bad witness for Christ. You're being disruptive. You're, it's like, it's, and this is kind of, this is kind of when I wish I was a cursor because it would be nice to say that's effing physics, dumbass. But, you know, maybe that's what Galileo told the, uh, told the Catholic priests, (laughs) 
Galileo <laughs> sitting there, uh, sitting there in locks, chains, house arrest. It's effing physics, dumbasses. Um, but it does it does lead to a whole different intellect and uh, an interesting intellectual exercise as it relates to um, the balance, the dance, the the contradictory at times. Um, kind of what's it's almost um an oxymoronic relationship uh between it's an inconsistent relationship between the newness of scientific breakthrough coupled with the stability of past discovery past conclusions past orthodoxy i guess and what i mean by that is you know, so on, on, on sometimes the newness, the new breakthrough is right. So the, the, you know, flat earth was the orthodoxy. And the newness of a spherical earth was the new idea. And it turns out that the new idea was the idea that ended up being correct. Okay, Galileo with the whole, you know, um, heliocentric, uh, geocentric, you know, differing views of the universe that, hey, the earth is at the center and everything revolves around the earth was the, you know, accepted thought of the day. And Galileo comes with math and says, hey, I think it's actually the sun's at the center. And again, the new idea is what ended up being correct. But then you have with at least just some examples that come to mind right now, you know, you have COVID where everyone was saying, oh, the new idea is that somehow the COVID particle is unique and it doesn't adhere to the same Brownian diffusion physics-based size laws that we know about particles and aerosols. That was the new idea and it ended up being wrong. And then you have people saying, oh, but COVID's more potent. It's going gonna, it's gonna to wipe out millions because it's more potent. Well, and that idea ends up being wrong because of what we previously knew about viruses, that they naturally weaken themselves so that they can stay alive and continue to propagate. So in the first two examples, the old idea proved wrong and the new idea proved correct. And the two examples I just gave regarding COVID, the old idea is proved right and the new idea is proved wrong. So it's this very interesting um, and I, I've been giving thought to this, and I, I haven't really thought it out um, to where I feel confident in actually what's going on there. Because, But it is fascinating to me. It is fascinating to me because sometimes the new ideas are the things that prove correct. And sometimes it's the old ideas that are proven to still be correct. Um you know, but another example that I think is worth going over because it's going to be as as COVID kind of peters out and they lose the fear controls of that thing, um, they're going to get back to climate change and global warming as being the new fear controller. And, you know, you, again, you have to ask yourself, what formation are they trying to get me to take? And you know, again, just looking at the data, looking at examples, looking at predictions, 
and I've gone over this before, you know, there were there was a Stanford guy who was predicting that Manhattan would be underwater in the mid-70s. It's clearly not. His prediction was wrong. Um, there were people in the 2000s predicting that Miami Beach would be underwater by now. It's clearly not. They're clearly wrong. Um, you know, you have Obama and company, you know, getting extremely hyperbolic on, oh, rising ocean levels, yet he spends... 15 million on a Martha's Vineyard mansion right on the water. He's building another tens of millions of dollar mansion in Hawaii right on the water. So it's like, well, if this guy actually believed the rhetoric he was spewing, he would be building in the French Alps or, or somewhere inland by, you know, miles and miles so that his investment in his home wasn't, weren't overtaken by seawater. So again, you have to ask yourself, what formation are they trying to get me to take? And the interesting thing, and, and this is something that I've, I've told people off the podcast for years, you know, when they want to talk about global warming and, you know, rising CO2 levels, I've always asked them, hey, I mean, what we know about photosynthesis and plants is that plants need CO2 to survive. And not only do they need CO2 to survive, we know demonstrably that they thrive with CO2. And so I asked them, okay, so if plants want and need CO2, how is more CO2 detrimental to plant life? I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious one-to-one. This is what we know to be true about photosynthesis and plants and their need for carbon dioxide. And yet, Somehow we're supposed to think that all of a sudden now that CO2 is going to kill plants? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So I've been asking that question for 10 years. And everybody always, oh, well, it's, you know, it's always the, well, you know, it's a different thing because, you know, the two much will be ba da ba And it's like they, they talk themselves out of it without even understanding, you know, the most minuscule shred of what they're trying to, the point they're trying to make. So lo and behold... This week, I stumbled upon a study that NASA did in 2016 where they took satellite imagery of the Earth. And they compared it over the course of several years. And the satellite imagery showed that actually during the rise of these CO2 levels, that the plants were in a boom cycle. Plant life was in a never-before-seen boom cycle. And this isn't some, you know, you know, lunatic fringe, you know, off the grid kind of, you know, nobody knows about this person and they just sort of created all of this, you know, anecdotal observations out of thin air and, you know, created a, put forth a, an, an assertion, okay? This was official NASA conducting a multi-year-long study looking at satellite imagery and drawing conclusions based upon observable evidence, hey, plant life has gone up X percent. Or, um, and and the, I read this uh, part of the study, I read the intro of the study, and it said that it was three continents worth, three United States continents worth of new plant life had formed during this rise in CO2 levels. Okay, This is 2016 when the study came out. Have you ever heard of it? No. Has anybody ever heard of it? Apparently not. The media clearly does not want you to hear of this. And so again, it's not information warfare. It's the in-space formation wars. 
And, and I think in order to move through this, more and more people need to realize that this has nothing to do with data and evidence and information and statistics. No, it has everything to do with the forceful coercion of more and more people to assume a particular form, whether that's a physical form, i.e. a cloth mask on your face, a.k.a. a face diaper, whether that's injecting a new substance into your arm, and then, oh, whoops, the first one didn't work, so we need a second one. Oh, whoops, that didn't work, so we need a booster. Oh, whoops, that didn't work, so we need another one. I mean, if, if, if the COVID vaccine, and I'm putting vaccine in loose air quotes, if the, I'm not even going to call it a vaccine. If the COVID shot is any, if it's anything, it's a real-life tangible physical example of the fatal conceit of communism and socialism, which is always when it fails, comes back to the excuse, oh, it wasn't true communism. It wasn't true. Hey, stock market's closed. No more purchases and sales um, during this thing. So I guess that's, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, holy moly, Facebook is getting absolutely annihilated. Annihilated. I bought um, one call contract at their 200-day support line of $230.11, and it closed $6 below that. So to give you an idea of options, um, I am down, holy cow, that is, if I had my other portal open, it would already automatically calculate the percentage for me. Come here, come here, Chrome. I thought you hated Google. Um, log in. Wouldn't that be something if people could decipher my online passwords based upon the rhythm of the clicking and then they could like spatially map it out and be like, oh, there was a 0.62 second delay. That means he went from a Q to an N. Um, positions, let's see here, Facebook. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. <laughs> I love options. I'm down 59.45% in a day um, on a single Facebook call contract. Um, so remember I was talking about the mathematical leverage, which I'm trying to wrap my mind around. So it went, I bought it when it was at 2.30 and it's closed at 2.24. So that's a $6 move. That's like a 3% move, okay? So the, the underlying stock price moved down three, three and a half percent. And my option, because it's leveraged with Delta and Gamma and Vega and all kinds of implied volatility nonsense, all these, oh, there's a phone call. Um, all these imply, all these Greek variables that nobody understands. Well, that few people understand and I'm trying to understand better. The underlying moved down three and a half percent and my option contract is down 59.45%. That kind of gives me goosebumps just because the math is just so tantalizing. <laughs> so we'll see. That thing, that thing needs to recover. And that's the crazy thing about options. If it does recover um, and it moves up, I mean, if it moves back up to, I can even put in here. I can even say, 
So if it moves to, I want to sell that if it hits 250. So if it moves to, if it moves to 10, uh, wow, yeah. So if it moves to $257 a share, um, that option contract would be worth 10 bucks according to this calculator. So, you know, you go from being down 59% to being up 300%. Um, pretty, pretty nutty, crazy, wacky stuff. Um, shoot, where was I going? Yeah, so um, the, the information they're trying to get you to take a particular form. Um, but no, no, the, the, so the COVID shot, that's a physical, it's a physical um, example of the whole, oh, it didn't work because we didn't apply enough resources to it. That's like the bureaucrat's wet dream. Oh, so oh, our welfare program didn't create more jobs. It must mean that we didn't provide enough welfare. I mean, that's, that is the bureaucrat's wet dream that, oh, this thing failed. Ergo, we need to apply more stuff to it. And all you have to do is step out into the real world uh, for several examples of, hey, if that failed, um, it's probably, it could very well mean, it's a possibility that um, it's not that not enough was applied to it, but perhaps it was a poor allocation of resources to begin with. Could be. Could be that. Um, but government doesn't apply to the, they, they don't apply the Pareto principle. They apply the more is better, gobble everything up, and just keep flailing about um, until the entire thing collapses principle. <laughs> At least that's my brief bird's eye view reading of uh, national history and uh, the history of empires and kingdoms over the years, is they do not apply to the 80-20 principle. More, 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 and then just complete collapse. Um, but stop being a coward and start asking yourself. If, if, you get, if you take anything from this podcast, ask yourself when you're presented with any sort of um, writing, words, news, you know, even this podcast, heck, ask yourself, what formation is he trying to get me to take? And I'll answer that as clearly as I can and as sincerely as I can and as straightforwardly as I can. I want you to take the formation of not being a P-U-S-S-Y cat. Stop being a little little bitty putty cat that's afraid of everything, primarily being afraid of being found to be out of official formation. Um, because that, historically speaking, has never gone well for the majority, and it most certainly would not go well for your conscience, your soul, um, and you as an individual, unless you can just come up with all kinds of seared conscience mechanisms to write off, well, you know, i am just uh, got to provide for my family, and uh, uh, just I'll shovel those ashes. Have a good day, and uh, we'll see you on the next podcast. Peace.